Sundays as well, and I've done that for a few years. So it's, it's been a really good time uh, enjoying, uh, you know, been doing that. However, before that, I, I'm curious, any Freedom High School kids in this room? So we got a, any who went there in the last, like, maybe graduated in 2017 in a few years before that? When did you graduate? 17. Did I help you with your college application at all? Did you go to college? You did. Okay. So, like, I actually worked at Freedom High School the last, you know, for like four years. I worked as a substitute teacher. Uh, you would have known if you remembered me because I was like the best substitute teacher ever. And then I worked in the college and career center there for a couple of years. So if you want to know anything there is to know about scholarships, I guess we could talk afterwards. But uh, I, I did that for a couple of years. And then uh, my wife, who actually, she teaches at Freedom High School still, Mrs. Angelo. She teaches history. Uh, she's the best teacher there ever, I swear. And uh, she, she, got a, she, she made a baby. Uh, I helped. But she had a baby. And so when the baby came, I decided to stay home and watch him because uh, her job paid a lot more than me. So that's what I do now. So now I got to work here part-time and play with a little baby. And uh, she gets to go uh, hang out with knuckleheads all day. And it's a lot of fun. But uh, it's, it's almost as fun as Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, I guess. But... Uh, Man, it's, it's exciting to be here today and, and get to know Josh over the last year, man. You guys are really fortunate to have uh, Josh and Amanda here because they're just uh, really cool folks, and hopefully you're getting to know them um, better. But, man, when he asked me a, a month or so ago, hey, can you fill in on this date? Uh, we're, we're going through Hebrews. And, and so I'm like, hey, that'd be fun. And then I started reading through Hebrews 9, and I'm like, man, there's a lot of stuff here. Um, and, and our first response when we read not just Hebrews, but anything in the Bible, at first we might feel overwhelmed and like, this is weird and I don't get it and it's, no one can understand this. And the thing is, the Bible at times seems difficult, but it's actually not difficult to understand. The, the problem is we're just really removed from the biblical story, okay? And one of the things that I do, that I get to do here on Sundays, is I actually teach classes in how to interpret the Bible, biblical interpretation. And uh, one of the illustrations I give folks in my class is that uh, it's like this. My, I just had a son, and so his name's Mateo. He's one years old. So let's back up a couple generations. My in-laws, my mother and father-in-law, are 100% Portuguese. They're immigrants to America. They, they came here in the late 70s. They had my wife. My wife's a first-generation American. And so my wife uh, was very much involved in Portuguese culture, right? Is anyone here like an immigrant or from an immigrant family and, and, and you, like, you, you like know all about it? You speak the language in the house, right? So many of us, we still speak Spanish in the house or we speak German or whatever. And you, you, like all your parents' friends, they finally, they find the only other people in your local community that are of the same ethnicity. And so all your parents' friends are those folks as well. And so then all your friends are like their kids, right? So you, you kind of grow up and you have this this heritage that you're maintaining. And in the Portuguese community, they're all crazy people and they have parades and all these uh, festas is what they're called and all this stuff. And so my wife grew up in this. She had dance classes where you learn traditional Portuguese dance. And, and so she was like all about this. If she wanted to talk to her grandma, she had to speak in Portuguese because that's all my, you know, her grandmother spoke. Well, my wife grows up and she marries this white dude named Vinny. And I am not Portuguese. And so, like, I've, I feel like I'm Portuguese, though, because I know a lot about it now. But in our house now, it, like, you know, Shayla, she grew up, she went to American high school. She, she's, she grew up, like, bilingual and everything, but she's one kind of generation removed. Well, she marries me. We have a kid now, and we, we have a son named Mateo. And Mateo is 50% Portuguese. But he's not growing up in a house that speaks Portuguese. You know, he's going to learn some words. Uh, my wife says, I better make sure I learn now because she's going to teach them Portuguese and they're just going to talk about me. So I like, I have to learn now. But 
but my son, he, he has to work a little harder, right? He could speak to his grandparents, his Portuguese grandparents, in English, because they speak English. But he's, he, he has to work harder because he's, he's like one more generation removed. And when Mateo, if he ever has kids, okay, his kid is going to be like 25% Portuguese. And so in order to, to maintain that cultural heritage, he, my, my, my grandson is even going to have to try harder, right, to understand his culture and his heritage. And, and you can see how that's only like a couple generations away. Imagine we're reading the book of Hebrews, and we are hundreds and hundreds of generations away from what was written 2,000 years ago. And guess what? It was a book written in Greek, which I, many Greek scholars in here, no? No one grew up speaking Koine Greek in the home? No? Okay. So it's, it's written in Greek and written to a Jewish Christian congregation. So it's like this, this bilingual mixed group. We are so far removed from that, Right? The Bible is not difficult to understand. It's just for us, for people who live in 21st century America, man, we got to try a lot harder to get to that. Just like my grandson's going to have to try a lot harder to understand his Portuguese heritage. You get where I'm going on that? Okay. That's the deal when we read the, the Bible. And, and so I, as I was preparing, and, and for the last you know, month or so, I've been reading through uh, Hebrews 9, it's like, man, there's a lot of weird stuff in here. And, and that's like my first thought. This is weird. And then it's like, no, it's weird to me because I live in Oakley in 2018. And I grew up with white parents. Like, that's why it's weird. It's not weird, though. We just got to do a little more digging, and that's what we're going to do tonight. We, we just got to make sure we get ourselves a little bit closer to that story. So, um, you know, tonight's topic, it's, it's a little strange. We're, we're going to go through one of those uh, topics that we just have to dig a little more into, and it's because it's unfamiliar to us, and it's because it's, it's largely dealing with sacrifice, something that we don't really do a whole lot of in terms of what, what Hebrews 9 is talking about. Now, anything in life that's meaningful, it usually involves sacrifice, okay? So at your age and stage in life, if you wanted to get good grades in high school or, or if you're in college now and you want to get good grades, you sacrifice um, things in life to study and get good grades, right? So it means you're going to have delayed gratification. You're not going to do, you're not going to go out with your friends. You might not, you might only spend like four hours on Instagram instead of like 17, right? And so like you're saying, okay, I'm not going to do as much as I want to do. I'm going to delay some stuff and sacrifice some things in order to, uh, you know, have a, have a reward. Um, If you took AP tests or an AP class, that was a lot more work than your, than your friends were taking regular classes. And you're like getting upset. It's like, dude, why am I doing this? Why am I studying for this stupid test? But you knew that if you got a three or higher on that test, what does that do? Bam! That's one college class I don't got to take, right? It's a delayed reward. It's a sacrifice that comes with a great reward. If you have a job now or in high school, it's like, man, instead of going out Friday nights with the friends, you're, you know, serving ice cream at Cold Stone or whatever. You're doing something that you might not like doing. You're sacrificing that in order to gain some money for school or for whatever you want to do. It's a sacrifice. Even being at Kairos tonight, you might be missing out on work. Don't schedule me on Tuesdays, and that might be a good tip night or something like that. But don't schedule me because this is important to me. I'm sacrificing money to be with this community. All good things in life, meaningful life, meaningful things in life usually come by means of sacrifice. You see this in dating, right? In dating, it's like there's this person I'm very attracted to, and I have all this feeling. Like, let's be honest. I want to do things with this person. And that's like, we're wired to want to do things with people, not people, person. Let's get that right. But let's be honest. It's, oh, I'm, I, I'm going to wait on something. I'm going to sacrifice this feeling and these urges that I have now because I know if I wait, it's going to be that more, much more meaningful and that much better. 
it's a sacrifice. And it's, that's, that's difficult. Let's be honest. Like, that's difficult, right? Can I get an amen in the house? Like, amen, you could say it. It's okay. Let's not pretend that doesn't exist. Marriage is good. So sacrifices, they actually increase as we get older as well. So parents, and I'm going to say this as a, a, being a parent for the last year, parents sacrifice, man. Like, we don't recognize it. Like, when I was your age, I did not recognize the, the sacrifice of parents. There might, maybe there's some people in this room who are parents. I don't even know. And you, and you know, like, you know what this is all about. But you give up, like, so much. Like, I'm not watching the baseball game at night because now we're feeding time or because, you know, we've got to watch another episode of Muppet Babies because he just has teeth coming in and he's hurting. And I know that that's going to take his mind off the, the you know, and I'd, I'd rather watch the baseball game. Moms, they sacrifice. Like, being in the, in the delivery room, that was sacrifice. Like, literally, she, my, my wife for nine months was giving up her body for my son to grow in there. That is sacrifice. And, and then I'm sitting on, in, in that delivery room in Kaiser, and she has given up her body, man, when this kid's coming out. I mean, I'm not being shock value here, but this is like, this is reality. Like, she has given up her body. This, this kid is tearing her open to make an entrance. Sorry, Rita. I, like, I, I, we should have had this talk like a year ago. But, but birth, which is like the greatest thing in life and, and raising a kid and having a kid, that's like the ultimate thing. But that takes like a really big sacrifice. It's literally the spilling of blood. And it's because ultimate sacrifice usually involves the shedding of blood. So we're immune to this. Like if you think about it, we grow up in Oakley. What do we see blood on? We open up a package of pre-cut chicken and there might be the little red stuff that like oozes out right? The, the chicken we get from Lucky's. We don't, see, we don't deal with dead bodies, and we don't deal with dead animals. We've, I've never slaughtered an animal. Like, that's weird to me. And that's the mindset we have to get back to to understand what's going on in Hebrews. But here's the thing. We kind of do understand this a little bit. Because if we were to look at American history, what's something that is like one of the most significant things that happened in the 20th century that involved blood? And so we're going to, let's watch just a quick clip of, of a video you guys got that video? And this is like, this is legit right here. So that's like saving Private Ryan, right? And it's like D-Day, the beach of Normandy, like tens of thousands of people are dying. And we remember that day. And if, if you go over to Normandy, France, there's like even a memorial. There's graves with crosses all over the place. Because we know that that was an ultimate sacrifice that people paid. Tens of thousands of people dying. And that's important because it's the shedding of blood, man. That's ultimate sacrifice right there. Tonight, that's what we're going to talk about, the ultimate sacrifice. We're going to talk about blood of 
goats and bulls and how those things point to the best sacrifice that we've ever seen. That's weird to us, but it's really not. Let's pray and get into the text. God, guide us tonight as we read about what you've done for your world. Amen. Hebrews 9, verse 15 through 22. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. And he was saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So if we're going to break this text down, and it, it, there's some weird stuff in there. I think if we, if we look at verses 15 and 16 and understand that, that's kind of going to shed some light on the rest of the passage. So that's what we're going to look at. So verses uh, 15, and, uh, 15 first. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised and eternal inheritance since a death has incurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So he is the meteor of the new covenant. He is referring to Jesus. We go back to what we've read before, and that's going to tell us who we're talking about. And, and it's uh, the new covenant. You guys have been going through that already. Josh spoke about that a few weeks ago. We, we, we don't really need to, to retouch that again because you guys know what that means. But the author of Hebrews is continuing that idea. What we're talking about tonight is developed already in the, in the preceding uh, chapters. So we need to unpack some terms. What do we think of when we hear the word mediator? He is the mediator of a new covenant. So we might think of maybe a legal mediator where you have uh, two parties are needing to resolve a conflict and you have a person who's kind of getting in the middle of that and helping them. Or maybe you've had a family crisis where you have a mediator, maybe a family friend or a pastor come in who kind of helps the maybe mom and dad or the family members work through something. I'm a sports fan, and you often hear of contracts that go to mediation because the player thinks, hey, I should get paid more, and the owner says, no, I want to pay you less. And they go before a judge, and they present the arguments, and the judge decides what the player will be paid. That, that's kind of our modern use of mediator or mediation. And so when we read Hebrews 9, we might think that's what the author's talking about. But that's not what he means. Uh, the Bible and the, the biblical concept of mediator here is, uh, is not modern. It's, it's, it's not two groups of people who are partners or equals, because that's not what's happening in the biblical story. What, uh, what we're dealing with is a covenant. And, and I know Josh talked about how a covenant is different than a contract, but we should just maybe go over a few things uh, real quick. It's not a, it's not a contract. Um, Contracts are based on mutual trust, equals. Verizon says, I will give you cell phone service and I trust that you can pay for it. And, and that, that's what a contract is, right? But we can't be in a contract with God because we are not equals. We don't have trust with God left to where we were, where we started at. And you can't be uh, equals with someone, or you can't be in a contract with someone who you're not equals with. So let's, let's push the story back, the four-part story of 
the Bible, the world, okay? You have creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Creation, God makes everything good, and Adam and Eve are living with him in the garden, and life is awesome. Adam and Eve sin, it's called the fall, and so there's a separation between man and God, human people and God. At that, that's the point where there's no more contract that could be made at all. It's, it's, it's got to be purely from God. And so then what you happen is in Jesus, he's restoring this by his death, what we're talking about in Hebrews. And guess what? The covenant that's, that's coming out of there, and there's covenants that are along the way. I'm kind of skipping, you know, we're skipping some stuff. And if you're hanging out at Golden Hills in the uh, next winter in January, we're going to be covenanting it, it out. I just turned it into a verb, covenanting it, it out. Anyway, like a whole lots of covenant stuff. But, but you have the ability to, to be brought into this covenant again, this partnership with God because of what Jesus has done. But before what Jesus did, what, what the author of Hebrews talks about, man, we have what's described as hearts of stone towards God. Okay, we're angry at God. We're rebel sinners against God. A rebel sinner isn't, isn't an equal. You get what I'm saying? And so a mediator is not going to do anything in that situation. It, so, so let's look at Jesus as the mediator. He was used, Jesus was used to enact the covenant. And this, by Jesus enacting this covenant, he's the one who established this new relationship between God and people. And it's not something that Jesus is saying, hey, people, do you want to, how about you guys do this and then God will do this? No, that's not, not, that's not what's happening. He's saying, I am establishing it, and this is the terms of the deal. This is just what it is, and guess what? I'm calling you into it. I'm calling my people into it. That's what he's doing as a mediator. He's, he's establishing it, not asking our opinions on what we want to do with it. He's not asking for a compromise. Jesus isn't a compromiser in this situation. He's a mediator, and, and, and so biblical mediation, it's different than what we may think. So Jesus acts as the mediator, and he enacts a new covenant so that... And that's the phrase in the, in the text, right? He does that so that. Anytime you see a so that, you want to kind of like circle that. That's a purpose. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Those who are called. So this is a, a phrase actually used throughout the Bible to describe God's people. Paul uses this phrase all the time. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Ephesians 4 says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worth of your calling to which you have been called. Romans 8, and those who have been, uh, he predestined, he also called. And to those he called, he justified. And to those whom he justified, he glorified. So brothers and sisters in here, if you are a believer, if you're a Christian, it's not because you sought God. Right? This is actually a beautiful thing that might seem weird, but no, you didn't seek God. Uh, you didn't respond to an invitation. I'm telling you just Bible stuff here. But you didn't respond to an invitation. You are involved with God because God called you. And that's a beautiful thing. You're called. And because you have been called, then you have been redeemed from sin. And that's, that's just beautiful. So this is actually even, you know, Paul, this is a theme for him, and he talks about this in Galatians 4. He talks about what Jesus did, and he says, Jesus redeemed those who were under the law so that, that's a purpose clause, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We receive adoptions as sons. Uh, Adoption actually wasn't really a Jewish concept. It's very popular in our times now. In in Jewish culture, it wasn't that popular. It it was actually more of a Roman concept that would happen. So oftentimes you would get rich Roman dudes. And uh, they might, you know, be a a powerful uh, political figure, just a rich business owner or whatever. And they wouldn't have a son. And in the ancient world, it's all about that firstborn son to give. He takes over your family name and carries on your lineage and gets your inheritance, right? So if I didn't have one of those and I was a rich dude, what do I do? This is an issue for me. No one, could, no one could carry on my stuff, my name, my legacy. And so the rich men, the rich Roman men, what they would do is later in life, they would actually adopt sons, oftentimes slaves, and they would adopt them as a son. And, and the son would receive all the benefits that a normal, naturally born son would. It's a, it's a really beautiful thing. The, the son would receive a whole brand new name that would be of the father. If he had any debts to a slave owner or whatever, those would be forgiven and paid for. Um, immediately. And, and right away, that son takes on the status that the father had. If, if the son was down here in the so, social totem pole and dad was up here, boom, he's up there. No, like, let's see if it works out. It's not dating or anything. Bam, son is this now. It also meant that son, he's responsible for his, uh, to represent the father positively because the father now, he, uh, the father's responsible for any knucklehead thing that the son might do. So he wasn't a second-class son. He was a son. He was adopted. And when you're adopted, you are a true son. So when we read Bible translations, I actually think at times it's helpful when um, uh, mixed-gendered pronouns are used. There's many times when Paul might say brothers in the Greek, and what he means is brothers and sisters. And I think it's okay to say brothers and sisters because that's what he's meaning. But when we read a phrase like this, received adoption as sons, we've got to understand that it's not sons and daughters. It is that, but that's not, we, we need to understand the text here. We've been received adoptions of sons to God. We've been made a true child of God. Just like in the Roman culture, those slave kids were made to be true children of God, or to, to, to true children of those Roman powerful guys. All, you get all the benefits that came along with that. Everything that a rich father could give in an inheritance, given a status, it's like those guys, they have zero birthright to that. They have no legal right. But guess what? They were adopted. And that's what Paul says God does for us, for those who have been called. And so it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile or a man or a woman or a slave nor free. That's what you get when you've been called by God. So let's bring it back to being redeemed then. To be redeemed also has a Roman background term uh, from slavery. When people were bought out of slavery and, and, and you were... Uh, uh, you know, when, when biblical people in the first century would hear these letters from Paul or the Hebrews and they hear of redemption, that's what they're thinking. Someone bought out of that situation where you were a slave to something. And, it, it, you know, now all of a sudden it's put into Christian talk and like you were a slave to sin. But guess what? You were bought out of that. You've actually become God's property. And these are, these are terms that we oftentimes blow over, but man, when we understand the background of these things, especially in their historical culture, it's like, whoa, this is way bigger than I thought. To be adopted, to be redeemed, to be freed from a slave situation to something greater, that's awesome. So verse 15 reminds us that there's a new covenant and that Jesus is the one who mediates that covenant, not, you know, not making it happen, not wheeling and dealing, but he's enacting it. 
and he's doing this between God and the people who God has called to be his own. And, and this is called redemption, where sinners are redeemed from their past. And this happened because of what Jesus did, his death. And so we move on to verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So we hear the word will in, in the English translation. And uh, what we're not seeing is that the, the author of Hebrews is actually doing a little bit of a play on words here. So in the Greek, the word used for will, and this is one of those times where it's helpful to say what's going on in the Greek. Most of the time it's not, right? Has Josh said that like most of the time it's not helpful to talk in the Greek? When, when people like say if it's in the Greek, it's probably helpful. So this is one of those times, okay? It's the word diatheke. Okay, that's the word for, for will in Greek. But it's actually the same word used for covenant. Okay, so he's using a, or, or testament, same word. So in the previous verse we read, therefore the mediator, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So let's put this together. The letter's written to Jewish folks, and so when they hear this letter in Greek, they would have understand the theological background of diatheke as being covenant they would have immediately understood the concept of, of uh, you know, a covenant, a formal yet personal relationship that Yahweh has with them as being the people of Israel. And, and they understand this. Um, but, uh, but here's the thing. It's, it's a play on words. So in secular Greek, diatheke, okay, is actually the word used for will, as in your final will and testament, which is something that we're more familiar with in our, in our modern American culture, right? So you know the legal document that expresses that how a person wants their stuff given out when they die. So the author of Hebrews is saying, he's embedding this in this passage, the concept that we have a diatheke of our diatheke. So let's play this out, what this means. It's actually really cool. It's the inheritance, the will, that the Christian receives as being a member of the covenant. The diatheke of the diatheke. The will, the thing, the inheritance that you get by being a member of the people of God. And you will actually only get this because you are the beneficiary of a will. Has anyone ever received a will? Like maybe like Aunt Betty or Grandma Sally or someone, someone dies and then like you found out like, oh, I got something. Like that's interesting. I, I actually haven't had that yet. Praise God because I actually, my family haven't had a lot of people die, which is scary. They're all like, you know, it's like all going to happen. Um, anyway, so I, I have ADD. I got to write out my stuff or it's going to get weird in here. So we hear of someone passing away and they have a will, and we know that the person who has the will, they're going to give their most treasured stuff away to people that they love the most. That's the way a will works. So rich Aunt Betty, you know, she's going to give her money or her possessions not to the jerk-faced neighbor kid who would, like, egg the house and all that. She's going to give her money and possessions away to her daughter or her favorite nephew or something like that. Because prized possessions are inherited by people who are loved dearly. Prized possessions are given to people and inherited by people who are loved dearly. So God's people have been called and redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus. And therefore, we are people who are dearly loved by God. And that's why we've been redeemed for an inheritance. That's the point that the author is trying to make in verse 16. We have this inheritance that's been given, and it's part of that covenant. And who's in the covenant? The people of God. And if you're in the people of God, you, you're, you're read off on the will. So-and-so gets the car. You're in. You get something. 
So he moves on. The, the first couple verses, verse 15 and 16, that kind of sets up the, the passage. Let's, let's go on to verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood and calves of goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. So here the author of Hebrews, he wants us to look backwards to the Torah, especially the first five books of the Old Testament. So the first covenant, the first diatheke, it was made with God's people Israel. And this is where we need to sit and understand the weightiness of sacrifice. Okay? When, when, when the early Christians read this, when they heard Hebrews 9 being read, they would immediately heard of, of Moses' words from Exodus and Leviticus. I'm going I'm to read from uh, Exodus 24. And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to Yahweh. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins and half the blood and threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. They also would have heard these words from Leviticus 14. The priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and he shall let the living bird go into the open field. Covenants are inaugurated with blood. And that's because in the ancient world, blood, it was the mysterious source that contained the life of the person. Okay? So blood was very sacred. The pagan people would actually, uh, they would eat blood. Okay? It was part of a ritual where they would eat blood because they believed they could absorb the life force of another creature. So they'd eat the blood of people or animals or whatever. It's super creepy. So this is actually why when you read in the Torah, there's passages that talk about how you have to eat meat that's, that's prepared in a certain way. If you've ever had a, a Jewish friend, you might have heard the term kosher. Right? And it's make sure you, making sure you're preparing the food in a way that the blood is, is prepared humanely, the animal's prepared humanely. You're not strangling this animal to death in a weird way. All the blood's gone because pagans would, you know, consume the blood. And, and God was saying, Israel, part of the Torah is you're not associating, you're not worshiping like the pagan people do. Okay? You don't need to try to obtain power by eating blood of animals. Instead, you're going to sacrifice the blood and sacrifice it to me, Yahweh, and I will provide your power. I will sustain you. You don't need to depend on animals for life. Depend on me. <sighs> sacrifice. Anything meaningful in life involves sacrifice. And the most meaning meaningful sacrifices involve blood. Israel would have been very familiar with bloody animals, okay? But, but what is this passage talking about? It's obviously pointing back to Jesus who gave his life, real human blood. We get to verse 22. It says, indeed, everything under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Once again, the author of Hebrews, he's pointing us back to the Torah. Leviticus 17, it says, 
For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Last week, you read through the first part of uh, Hebrews 9, and the point of that passage is to show that we have redemption through the blood of Jesus. And uh, so do you see how like last week's passage is directly being put up against what we're talking about this week? It directly uh, connects. Hebrews 9 verse 12 is like a pivotal verse for what we're talking about. We have to look back to that. Jesus entered once and for all into holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. So the blood of bulls and animals and all that sort of thing, in a way that buys you some time, Okay, but what this is saying is the eternal God of the universe stepped into his creation and allowed himself to be slaughtered. Therefore, that blood redeems people eternally. Okay, that's what's happening here with blood. Blood sacrifices are necessary for atonement. Atonement was a word that popped up, and it's a very theological word. If you've been around church, we know it's, it's like a good thing. Sometimes we don't know what it means. But atonement is all about reconciliation between people who are not together, who have been estranged and separated. Atonement is, is uh, when we look at Jesus, it's God's way of bridging the gap between us and him, a gap that we didn't even care that existed. So if we've been around church, maybe you've been a Christian your whole life, maybe you're kind of new to coming to Kairos, you notice like we sing about blood a lot. Even today, like by design, we sang a lot about blood. We're worshiping God by singing about his blood. I grew up in the church, and so there's a sense where it, you kind of become immune to that. Anyone ever experienced that? You just hear a word or concept so much and it just kind of seems like noise after a while. And like I said, we live in suburban East Bay, bro. Like, when do I see blood? Like, I, I nicked my foot on our dishwasher and I, like, a bunch of skin came off and it bled. Like, that was a big deal for me last week. It was pretty brutal. Like, that's the most blood I've seen in a while since labor and delivery. Anyway, that was a lot of blood. So I was trying to come up with a good illustration on like, man, how can we like talk about the magnitude of blood or, or, or sacrifice and all that? And honestly, I had nothing to come up with. This is a, this is, in a way, this is a difficult passage. Give me like the prodigal son story or something. Like, you know, it's like, oh, you could go to simple application. And what I was realizing as I was studying through this text is like, man, this isn't about like a simple application. It's about understanding the weight and gravity of this passage, man. It's not just animals who have died. Thousands of animals have died in the worship of Yahweh. But God himself stepped into creation and died and bled. Like, that's something where we have a, a, a culture that celebrates buddy Jesus who could hook, up, hook us up with stuff. But that's not sincerely appreciating the weightiness of the God of the universe allowing himself to bleed for humanity. A violent, violent death. And so honestly the best thing we could do is meditate on scripture to try to wrap our heads around what's going on with this evil thing that happened that was the most beautiful thing that ever happened. So let's just read some scripture. Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. John 1, verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 23. 
preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your younger, uh, your, your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. Revelation 5, 6 through 14. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went out and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and beautiful bowls of incest, incest, and which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Revelation seven fourteen. Wondering who these people were. And these were the ones coming out of the great tribulation. There were martyrs for the testimony of Jesus. And they have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the lamb. Revelation 22, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by its gates. The new Jerusalem, the perfect garden where God dwells with his creation for all the rest of time. Anything meaningful in life involves sacrifice. And and since Jesus has redeemed the people by the ultimate sacrifice, then his people, us, Christians, we ought to live lives in the seriousness of that sacrifice. And as much as our culture, like I said, wants us to view Jesus as just a buddy who's going to hook us up with stuff, we can't minimize what he did. And that happens a lot in our society, right? 
we, we look at things like the prosperity gospel. We look at things where it's just Jesus wants, just wants you to be rich and healthy and that sort of thing. That's a huge minimization of what the weightiness of, of the atonement of Jesus, what his blood spilt actually was. But here's the beauty. Jesus is our buddy. He's our perfect older brother who appeals to the Father for us. Here's another way of looking at it. If we were actually purified with his blood, then are we actually living in light of the significant cost of that? And I'm not saying this as a guilt trip, because I could this, this sermon, this thing could really easily go guilt trippy, right? Like, he did this. I, there's a license plate frame that says something like this. Uh, you should try Jesus. He died for the opportunity. And that's bad theology. It's like he did this so you owe him something. No, that's not what I'm saying. If we have been redeemed and called to God, we need, and we understand the significance of that sacrifice, are we actually living in light of the significance of that? And that's what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's a much different thing than a guilt trip. It's not a guilt trip. With the shedding of blood, there was a forgiveness of sins. So why are we still oftentimes enslaved to the sins we've been forgiven from? You think about that? I use the example of a slave being redeemed. But can you imagine if a slave was, he, he, was, he was a slave and he was bought out of slavery and he's free to do whatever he want. Wouldn't it be really weird if that guy went right back to his slave owner on Monday and said, hey, I'm here for work. I'm here to clean the whatever. I'm here to do whatever you need. It's like, you're not my slave anymore. Why are you here? That's us with sin so often, myself included. We often go back to the sins that we've been forgiven from. Now, I can't imagine your life stage, like being in your life stage right now. I'm 39. I know I act like I'm 28 or 7 or 2, but I'm actually almost 40. So here's the thing. When I was in my 18 to 25-year-old life stage, I, I, like, I, I had struggles. Everyone struggles with stuff. And, um, like, I literally cannot imagine growing up in a, in a time and place where, like, the, the Internet is in my hand, okay? Because I, I, I had enough struggles being, like, an 18-year-old in 1997 with AOL dial-up modems. And, like, like, you have to work really hard to go look at naughty stuff on there, okay? If I just had it on my phone wherever I wanted to, like, honestly, like, it's, a, it's difficult enough as a 39-year-old dude who's married with a kid to, to battle that. I can't imagine being 18 and, you know, just being a, a knucklehead. There's so many issues. And I remember, I'll say this, I remember being at that age with, like, an older guy telling me, man, I can't imagine having the Internet back in my days because, you know, I had nudie mags. Like, he, he like, like, that was his thing. It's like he went to the store and got, you got to hide your magazine. Like, honestly, like, this is real-life struggle. And, and what I'm saying is there are so many things that are the, the longer, the, the more sophisticated our culture gets and the more we consume, the more that's available to us, the easier it is to just be a slave to the things that we've been redeemed from. And we could spend a whole time talking about sex and Tinder and hooking up and it's like total hookup call. I worked at the high school. Man, I managed the Twitter for the college and career center. Like I saw what you kids are doing. Like, not you kids, you know what I'm saying. Like y'all like out there. But like, dude, it's like, it's a crazy culture. And here's the thing, Christians, we've been redeemed from that. Why are we going back to the slave owner who does not own us anymore? And that's where when we, when we I'm not saying this as a guilt trip, I'm saying when we understand the significance of a blood sacrifice, that helps us. It's saying, man, I appreciate and I love Jesus more for what he did for me. Therefore, I could overcome this. 
because the spirit of Jesus has been given to me and he has allowed me to overcome everything. And I know I can just like he has overcome because the spirit of God dwells in me. There's a ton of distractions we have to fight like this. And man, I can't even imagine what my son is going to face in 2038, 20 years from now. I can't imagine what's going what's to be the struggles for him. But here's the reality. Regardless of, of where we live at in a Christian culture, Christian friends, you have the power to overcome that evil. And so much of it is remembering the weight and the severity of that sacrifice. And, and we need to really sit in that. If you've been freed from bondage and you've been received forgiveness, rest in the real blood of Jesus that's been spilt. For my friends here who are not Christians, and I don't really know this community right now, so I don't know, you know, who's who, but have you been called by God to be redeemed from your sin? This is something that you need to ask. Has God redeemed me? Am I one of his called? Um, have you been called to be redeemed to receive adoption and to become a son or daughter of the rich king? Okay. If God has called you, then live in light of that beautiful call and embrace the sacrifice that's been made for you. When, when we struggle, and we all struggle, okay, uh, whether we are actively or passively pursuing that sin, we're returning to that slave master, a slave master we've been freed from. So here is the ultimate good news of this passage in Hebrews. In Christ, we have forgiveness that covers our past. We have a mediator in the present who is making intercession for us before God. And we have an inheritance in the future that no one can take away from us. And this future inheritance, it's something that we get a taste now. Okay? We, the, the, the reality of God's kingdom is present on earth now. Not the way it's fully going to look, but it, it, it's present now. It's, it's in the church when we gather and we experience the love of God's people. It's when we experience goodness and beauty. Those are glimpses of the kingdom of God that will one day become fully inaugurated and consume the entire world. And guess what? Because we are adopted sons and daughters of that king, we get to inherit that. That is our inheritance. So, we often think that we're merely saved from something. You don't want to go to hell, so trust Jesus. That's bad theology, man. I mean, it's true, but it's bad theology. We're not just saved from something. We're saved to something. We're saved to the kingdom of God. We're saved to an internal kingdom. And that's the beauty of something like the book of Revelation. You realize that I, I read a lot from Revelation. And that's usually like this big, scary book that just has weird monsters popping out of the water. no. The book of Revelation is the most beautiful book for Christians because the point of the book is that Jesus overcame evil. He's empowered us to overcome. So overcome and we will sit and reign with him in his kingdom forever, our internal inheritance. Revelation says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his father. Friends, we've been redeemed from sin by means of the sacrifice of Jesus. If we've done that, then, then, then don't go back to the things you've been redeemed from, but seek the promise of the internal inheritance that we've been given, which is found in Jesus, who is the perfect redeemer and uh, has given the greatest sacrifice. It's the blood of the king of the world. And that's a weighty thing, and it's a heavy thing, but that's beautiful. And that's what we've been receiving, that's what we've received as his people, those who have been called. And we need to rest in that beauty. Amen? Let's pray.
God, things like this can seem overly heavy or they could seem just not even real and it's like, it sounds like a good story, but it's probably mythological. Help us understand what this actually means in our lives. Empower us to leave this place not uh, from a place of guilt or a place of shame, but of a healthy understanding of where you've brought us from and what you've done in our lives and how ugly we were and how beautiful you have made us for everyone who has been redeemed in this room and for my friends in here who are not that, who are new, who are are searching out this uh, Christian thing, for my friends who have been in church their entire life and are not Christians. I pray, God, that you would uh, uh, reveal yourself to them. You would fill their hearts. You would empower them. You would give their, their hearts of stone, hearts of flesh that beat for you, and that they would appreciate the bloody sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Amen. Amen, guys. Would you stand with us to worship?